This morning we come to the conclusion of our series in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians has a great deal to teach the church. We focused on one of the common themes throughout the book, and that is to stand firm, to, to be strong. We just got through singing uh, that, come Lord, you know, we're, we're eager, we're waiting for you to come. We'll, we'll be a bride dressed up and ready for you. Well, a big part of 1 Thessalonians is saying, Jesus is coming back soon. Here's how you get ready. And so as we have gone through the series, we've, been, we've really been finding ways that the church can stand firm while we wait for his return. We've talked about we standing firm in the faith and standing firm in suffering and standing firm in everyday life, standing firm in holiness. And this morning, we're going to conclude that series. Throughout the series, we've been memorizing a couple of Bible verses, and I know that you've got them down already, that you could stand in, at the microphone and you could recite those for us. But instead of doing that, let's just read them together one more time. All right, let's read our verses, and then we're going to take this away and see if we can do it by memory. Here we go. Rejoice always. Pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. All right, can we do that without the words on the wall? Those of you who have really been studying, say it loud so the person next to you can kind of follow along, all right? Let's see if we can quote those verses together, and yes, I'm going to cheat. All right, here we go. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Ready? Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. All right, excellent. Well done. There are certain verses in Scripture that you remember the address and so you can go back to that address whenever you need it. There are certain verses of scripture where instead of just remembering the address, you want to have that verse and carry it with you. So you don't have to go look it up when you want it, when you need it. These are some of those verses. I want to encourage you to just continue to work on these. These verses, 16 through 18, tell us how to live life while we're waiting on Jesus to come back. You keep on rejoicing. You keep on praying. And you give thanks in every circumstance. That's God's will for you. I want to encourage you to keep working on that, carry it with you, and, uh, and let it become a part of your life. All right? This morning we move into chapter 5. Each week we have spent a little bit of time in each chapter, and this morning we move into chapter 5 as we talk about standing firm in Christian fellowship. The last part of chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5 deals with Christ's return. It talks about the rapture, it talks about kind of the order of things, and it tells us how to know uh, <clears throat> how to be ready, I should say, for his return. 
And then the last half of chapter five is kind of like saying, until he gets here, this is how you live life as a church. Standing firm in Christian fellowship. And as we look at it uh, this morning, we're going to start at uh, verse 12. If you have your copy of scripture with you, or if you're following along in the Bible app, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. This is the first thing that we find as he teaches us how to stand firm in Christian fellowship, how to be a strong, healthy church until Jesus comes back. He starts by showing us how to relate to our leaders, how to relate to our leaders. There in in verse 12, He starts with, we ask you, brothers, and each time that word has appeared, as we have studied the book together, I've reminded you that that when Paul wrote that word, brothers, and when the people read that word, they weren't reading and thinking and hearing gender-specific nouns. They read that to mean siblings. It ends with a masculine vowel, so when you translate it into English, it winds up being brothers, but when they read it, they understood it to say brothers and sisters, siblings, family, right? And so he says, dear family, I'm asking you, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. He speaks to them of how we relate to our leaders. As we read through that verse, one of the words that jumps out at me is the word among. We ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you. And the reason that word jumps out at me is because of our Baptist heritage. A part of our Baptist background and tradition is minimizing the difference between laity and clergy. In, in our tradition, we, we try to say that we're one family. There's not as much of a difference between clergy and laity in our tradition as you might see in other traditions. That's why I personally, although I have no problem with those who choose differently, but that's why I personally choose not to wear a robe or a collar That's even why I choose not to sit on the platform. It's a way to express part of our tradition that that we, there's not that big a difference between laity and clergy. He says that word is is such a meaningful word, I think. Um, he, He says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you, that we are all part of the family together. But he also uses another word there, doesn't he? Ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. And I read that whole phrase on purpose because it's not just those who are over you, but he's very careful to say those who are over you in the Lord. And it's important that we hold that whole phrase together because Christ is the head of the church, not the pastor's. Christ is the head of the church. And so 
while we have leadership in church, those leaders are called and appointed by him to serve him. So these words, while we might run over them quickly, they actually have great meaning. He is calling the church, family, brothers, come on siblings, let's do this as a family. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. One of the great challenges of ministry is balancing among and over in the Lord. It, it can be a challenge to, to balance those two because for some, they are so among that they forget to lead. And for others, they are so over that they forget to live among. And so the challenge of ministry is, is to understand that we are family. As family the leaders are among the church family, appointed by the Lord to serve him by leading his people until he returns. Look at the last part of verse 13, because this kind of jumped out to me as well. In 13, he said, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, at first, you might think, well, that, that's a new thought. That really ought to be a new number. How come that's not number 14? It, it's still 13? Esteem the leaders highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. I actually think that they got the numbers right because I think be at peace among yourselves does go directly with the idea of Show respect and honor and love to those who are leading. Because when we're not at peace among ourselves, that directly impacts negatively how the leaders can lead. Those two ideas are not separate. They're actually, they're actually related. He says, here's how you relate to leaders those who are among you and over you in the Lord, show them respect, honor them in love because of their work and be at peace among yourselves. Second, he talks to us about how we relate to one another. That begins in the next verse, verse 14, how we relate to one another. He says, we urge you brothers, again, siblings, we urge you, family, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. He, he speaks of them again as family. You notice how Paul does that every time he's about to say something tough? Every time he's about to challenge them on something hard, he says, now brothers... Here's, here's how you relate to leaders. Now, brothers, here's how you relate to one another. He uses that word 60 times in his letters, by the way, over 20 in First and Second Thessalonians. I think the concept, the idea of church as family is very important to Paul. It's very important in the New Testament. 
We cannot get past that idea. Don't ever let church become a social event. Don't ever let church become a a gathering for inspiration or a once in a week time of religious entertainment. None of that is biblical. Instead, the biblical emphasis is If you accepted Christ, that means God adopted you into his family and he made you brothers and sisters. And as a family, he wants you to share in life together, taking care of one another, ministering to one another. In in our modern day American church, I think we miss some of that sometimes because we hire people to do the ministry. And when we hire people to do the ministry, we forget. Scripture says that we are family here to take care of and minister to one another. Matter of fact, the Bible says that my job is to equip the saints to do the ministry. That's actually in the Bible. It's not that I do the ministry. It's that it's my job to equip the saints to do the ministry. And so it's no wonder when he turns his attention to how we relate to one another, it's no wonder that they, are in, they involve ministry activities. We urge you, family, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. And for that matter, to do good for everyone. He says to admonish. He says um, in 14, look, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. I think it's, I think too often we kind of handle it differently. Too often we accuse the idle, look down on the faint-hearted, ignore the weak. That's why he gives us the reminders. These he refers to as idle. Most likely he's referring to um, those in the church at Thessalonica. It was kind of a strange phenomenon. Paul had told them that Jesus was coming back soon. So some of them thought that meant that he's coming back so soon, I really don't need to to keep working. I I can just quit my job. I mean, why would I I work if if I'm not even going to get to the 15th to get paid, right? I'll just hang out. And as Jesus lingered in his return, those people just remained idle. And what happened was they then started depending on others to provide for them. So you had a few doing enough work to provide for many. And Paul is saying, hey, that's not the way siblings do. That's not family. So guys, admonish the idol. He didn't say accuse them, gossip about them. It's all positive. Admonish them. 
say, hey, guys, Jesus isn't here yet, so let's, let's work together until he comes. Admonish them. Encourage the faint-hearted. That word for faint-hearted is kind of a, kind of a different word. It, it, means, it means that their faith is not fully developed. We might say that they're spiritually immature, that they're, they, they haven't grown much in spiritual terms. They're, they're faint-hearted. He says, encourage those folks. When you see that in somebody, encourage them. Encourage is a great word. You ever pay attention to what words mean? To discourage someone is to take courage away. To encourage someone is to add courage to. Courage. You encourage someone, you're saying, you've got this, you can do this, I have faith in you, together we can get it done. You are giving them the courage that they need to do that to which they've been called. So he says, you know, admonish the idol, teach them. Encourage the faint-hearted, get them going. And help the weak. Those who can't depend on us who can. And we're eager to help. And through all those, the idle, the faint-hearted, the weak, he reminds us, be patient with them all. See, we help one another. When I'm struggling, you're there to help me. And when you're struggling, I'm here to help you. This is family. We miss that when we misunderstand the purpose of the local church. The local church is not here. I know this is going to get me in trouble. That's okay. The local church is not here to make you happy. I'm sorry. But I hope you've heard that. The local church is not here to make you happy. The local church is here to represent God in a godless world, to represent light in a dark world. The local church is here to be the family of God gathered together, worshiping and working for his glory until Jesus comes back. We're all in this together. It ain't about you. I love you. <laughs> Brothers, sisters. But this is true. And so he says, this is what we do. When you see some who are idle, admonish them. When you notice that someone is faint of heart, encourage them. When somebody's weak, help them out. Make it about the others. And you know, I've learned something in the, I've been doing this a long time. And the long time I've been doing this, I've learned something. And that is the people who make everything about me 
are the unhappiest people in church. But the people who make everything about how can I serve others, they are the ones who find true joy. Life has meaning and they're happy. I think it works that way because that's when we're being who God called us to be. How we relate to our leaders is important. How we relate to one another is important. And then he addresses, while we're waiting for Jesus to come back, let's talk about how we relate to God. He begins in verse 16. These are our verses, aren't they? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice. That's a great word. Because the amazing thing about that word is it's a command. Rejoice. It's just like the command that we find in another one of Paul's books when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And for those of you on the back row, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. I don't mean this back row. I mean generally speaking. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Here he says that in a different way, but the same power. It's a command. Rejoice always. Why are we commanded to rejoice because you and I want our circumstances to make us happy. We're waiting for life to go our way. We're waiting for good things to happen so that we can be happy. And Paul says, no, you take control over your attitude. You choose, you decide, you intentionally rejoice. To rejoice is to be joyful. I choose joy. I can do that regardless of my circumstances. Granted, there are circumstances that make it more difficult at times. That's part of life. I'm not saying let's pretend that's not true. But I am saying, and I have lived and learned, that in, even in the worst of times, I can choose joy. And so he gives us this command. Rejoice always. And then he says, pray without ceasing. Now, when you pray, you have your head bowed, your eyes closed, and your hands crossed, right? How do we go through life like this without ceasing? Obviously, that's not what he means. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? What is prayer? Prayer is a conversation with God, right? It's simply a conversation with God. When you're on your phone and the conversation is over, what do you do? Bye, and hang up. For some of y'all, it still looks like hang up. But for many of us, it's hang up. Okay, see it. Bye, 
When we pray, we have been taught to end our prayer with a specific word. What word do we end prayer with? You see what we have done? We have taught ourselves that prayer is is a short conversation. And at the end of that conversation, we say, amen, we hang up, and it's over. Paul says, pray continuously. Pray without ceasing. I'm going to challenge you to do something that's going to be very hard, and it's even going to feel wrong to some of you this week. But I'm going to challenge you. This week, when you pray, never say amen. Scripture does not tell us to say amen. And I'm going to, let me rephrase that. Scripture does not tell us to say amen as the end of a prayer. It tells us to say amen to say, that's true. Actually, the Bible tells y'all to say amen in church once in a while if you want to get into it. I've been waiting 30 years to hear that. That's the way amen is used in scripture. It's to say that is true. But amen is never intended in scripture. It's never intended as hang up the phone, the conversation's over. I want to challenge you this week. Don't end your prayers in amen. Here's why. When you get to the end of your prayer, you're going you're to feel the, the unction. You're, you're going to feel like you're supposed to say amen. Let that be a reminder that you are choosing to leave the phone off the hook. That you are choosing to continue a conversation all day long. I'm not going to say, God, help me with my test and hang up. Instead, I'm going to say, God, help me with my test. And then I'm going to go into that test and the phone is still open. We're still communicating. We're still talking. And all day, every day, communication line is open. Pray without ceasing. He's always there. Why do we only pay attention to him a few minutes out of each day? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. You say, well, there are some things that I'm not thankful for. I'm not thankful for that that cancer diagnosis. I'm not thankful for the pain that follows a toe surgery. I'm not thankful that people can be mean and treat me rudely. But you know what he says? He doesn't say give thanks for all those things. In this case, the preposition is one of the key words. Give thanks in all circumstances. Regardless of what my life is throwing at me, I can find something to be grateful for. And you see what I have discovered is that grumpy and grateful don't like to hang out together. Grumpy and grateful don't hang out together. You get to choose which one of them you're going to hang out with and the other one is eventually going to leave. I choose to hang out with grateful. 
And then hopefully Grumpy will leave before too long. But if I choose to be buddies with Grumpy and I complain about everything and I'm mad about everything, I'm offended by everything, then what happens is I can no longer be grateful. And when I'm no longer grateful, I lose my joy. So rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And give thanks in all circumstances. Now, I wish that we could see it in Greek. Because in Greek, those words are in a different order. Greek is a fun language sometimes because often they'll put the most important words first. Then the secondary words follow. That is the case in these three verses because if you read it directly from the Greek, what you really find is always rejoice. Don't stop praying. In all circumstances, give thanks. The emphasis is on that continual relationship with him and that joy that comes from choosing joy, praying continually, and giving thanks. This is how we relate to God, particularly as we wait for Christ to return. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So often I have people ask me, how do I know God's will? I want to know God's will. How do I know God's will? Well, it starts in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. He told you, His will starts here. His will is rejoice always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If you're not willing to start there, then you can't expect to find God's will because he told you where it starts. This is how we relate to God. And then look at the last couple of verses there. 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from everything, from every form of evil. He says, don't quench the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. When he says quench, he uses a word that means to put out a fire. And throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, matter of fact, we can even go to to a specific verse in Genesis, and I can show you a specific verse in Revelation. Many times in between, the Holy Spirit is symbolized by fire. And here he says, don't put out the fire of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we come into church and we say, oh, that's not the way we do things. That's not our tradition. We look at each other and we say, hey, are they doing something right? Are they doing something wrong? Instead of just letting the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. 
we often quench the Holy Spirit by our love of tradition or religion. And he says to us, until Jesus comes back, keep this in mind, keep on rejoicing, keep on praying, keep on giving thanks, and don't quench the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit do his thing in your life and in your church. Welcome the work of God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit. So we conclude the series with this great paragraph, this great chapter that reminds us that church is not a spectator sport. It's not an inspirational gathering or a social organization. It's a family. It's a family of believers who are committed to God and to one another.